come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum! Astro Radio Z is a horror, cult, exploitation film podcast by filmmakers, critics, musicians, journalists, and fans for the film obsessed. Here is your host, Derek Terry. I dare you, Astro Zombies, to listen to this podcast. Because, man alive, are we going to talk about some hijinks tonight? You read the title, Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness, Wicked Games, Screaming for Sanity, and Deadly Dares are on the docket for tonight. And I got Mark and Scott here. I don't know how they're going to be coming at me with this one. Because I don't think they've seen any of these movies before. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. But I'm a huge Tim Ritter fan from way back, and you guys know this. If you were a fan of Astro Radio Z before I took over the show, I had Tim Ritter on, and we talked. It was right around the time Deadly Dares came out. So you know my love for these movies, and this is the first time on the show we're officially going to go in deep and talk about the Truth or Dare series. So, Mark, we're coming back to the shot on video. This seems to be the year of shot on video horror here on Astro Radio Z. Scott, you've been coming back. I'm surprised we're only doing one episode with this because this is a so lot. This is a lot to cover in one episode, but we're going to try our goddamn just to make this happen. Mark, did we bite off a little more than we could sw- that we could chew with this episode? Uh, uh... Maybe it all depends on how deep to the uh, elbow we want to go with some of these, uh, which I think a couple of them we're okay with not going, you know, staying a little shallow, but no, I think, I think we'll be all right. I think, I think we'll, we'll, we can blow this through. 
We can blow this. You heard it here first, folks. New drop here on Astro Radio Z. Mark the Movie Man saying, we can blow this. We can blow this. I've got my knee pads ready, so. I'm I'm really extremely excited to sit here and talk about Truth or Dare, Critical Madness, and all of these movies. Um, Tim Ritter, the director of these films, is one of the nicest dudes I have met in this underground, micro-budget, no-budget horror scene. I've been in contact with him for a number of years, and he's always extremely nice and a pleasure to sit and talk to. He is a genuine fan, and you can tell watching his movies that he wears his influences on his sleeve. So tonight we are only going to be talking about one through four. There is a brand new one that's going to be coming out later this year, I Dared You, Truth or Dare 5. But we'll save that for later down the road where we'll get Tim Ritter and Scott Tepperman, co-writer, co-producer, co-director of Truth or Dare 5. But for now, we're just going to talk about the ones we can actually watch. So let's go ahead and get rid of all the pleasantries and go into the immortal Truth or Dare a critical madness. Mike Strauber, citizen of an average middle-class community in the Sun Belt, aspiring architect, owns a house with a pool next to a golf course, has a pretty wife he adores and tries a little too hard to please, a wife who doesn't return the feelings, and is about to start a chain of events that will cause the terrifying deaths of innocent people and eventually her own. <laughs> oh my God! Sharon! For the first time, a future film made exclusively for the home video market first. Not for theaters. Not for cable or pay TV. Peerless Films presents a first-run home video feature. Truth or Dare. Madness. ever wanted as far back as he could remember was to be noticed to be cared for I dare you to slice your arm off 
this in your mouth and blow your head off. Now that he's gone mad, a madness so deep, so violent, it defies definition and baffles the best that psychiatry offers. He's finally getting attention. film made exclusively for the home video market first. Not for theaters, not for cable or pay TV. Peerless Films presents a first-run home video feature. Truth or Dare. Critical madness. If ever you're asked, you want to play truth or dare? Tell them you've seen the movie. Now, the synopsis for Truth or Dare Critical Madness coming from IMDb.com is Mike Strauber catches his wife Sharon in bed with his best friend, Jerry. He gets mad and takes off to embark on an adventure of murder and self-mutilation in demented games of Truth or Dare. Back in the day, in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, this came out in 1986, I literally saw this embossed tape cover every in every single video store I walked into. Even though this is a shot on video episode, along with the series that we've done, that Mark of the Movie Man and I have done all year, Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness, actually was shot on 16 millimeter. Tim Ritter, at the time, was only 17 when he wrote this and 18 when he directed this. And for this movie to have gotten out there and to become such a cult phenomena for such a young kid is actually an insane success story. Um, most people still don't know what the fuck this movie is. <laughs> it's still a small movie, but for those of us that are into underground sleaze and shot on video stuff, this is literally probably one of the most famous movies that there are and Tim Ritter got a name for himself on this movie alone. Now, Mark, had you ever seen this movie prior to this episode? No, I have not. So walking into this, what are your initial reactions to truth or dare a critical madness? Within one minute, we had boobs. So, so it obviously is a thumbs up. <laughs> Five star, five stub <laughs> film for Mark the Movie Man. We're going based on the the final cuts rating system, correct? 
<laughs> uh, yeah, actually, for shot on video, and it, this has been. I'm glad you're taking me on this journey because some of these, uh, most of these I had never watched. This was one that I had seen on the shelves and seen the poster and, and such. And I'm just like, yeah, you know, I never, never dove into it, but watching this for the age that Tim Ritter was when he, he wrote this and made this, this is, this is an ambitious project. Absolutely. It, it, it went places I didn't expect it to go. The the span of time, the storyline goes, and the elements and, and the kind of twists, if you will, uh, in this script were very surprising in a good way. They were unexpected for a shot on video, well, in this case, shot on film, but especially for the year it came out, I was very impressed with this first one. It went, I'm like, Wow, we're 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 really covering a whole spectrum in here, um, and I was impressed. It, it, the truth or dare one really impressed me quite a bit uh, for the film that it was. Because I'm looking at this, going, this is like, you know, this is like a million dollars away from being a wide release horror film in 1986. <laughs> yeah, and surprisingly enough, straight to video fare in mm-hmm. it. Or- for what it is, this was originally a short film that he had shot with Joel Weinkoop. The scene in which uh, Mike Strauber, uh, after he's, you know, his wife cheats on him and he kind of goes nuts. And the whole opening act of the film, he picks up a hitchhiker, this female, and goes to a campsite and plays this deadly game of truth or dare where each other are cutting eyeballs out and and uh, slashing open chests and all that. That scene was a literal take of the original short. That makes sense. I actually had that in my notes wondering if the first act was... A sh- originally a short film and they just built on from there i even mm-hmm. had that yeah notes. yeah the original short came from an anthology called twisted illusions that uh that tim ritter had made the first film tim ritter made was day of the reaper then twisted illusions had a number of shorts in it in truth or dare was one of them and that scene is basically what the short is okay that makes so sense. so uh scott you've seen this before right yeah uh i have a history with this one and it's actually a really fond memory of mine um i had this uh this is i saw this for the first time when i was in college so we're talking around probably somewhere between 96 and 98 i'd say um and uh I had these friends and these friends uh we we would always like find these movies like che- movies that we thought were going to be really cheesy fun at the video store and we would you know rent them and of course that meant VHS back in the day and my buddy Seth was coming back into town uh uh he was on leave cuz he was in the army and he was one of my good friends that we always do watch all these like exoteric films and everything like that. You know, he's Seth was a great guy. He's the only person of the friends that would have like the big Texas Chainsaw Massacre poster in his room and everything. And uh, he's a good guy, really talented these days, working as a DJ uh, in Seattle now. It's really good. Anyway, he comes down to my place and um, 
he said and he says no 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 don't even bother i have got i have found such an amazing movie you have got to see this and he takes this thing out and it's this it like you said it's got it, it, the the cover ju- jumps out at you because it's got like that what do they call it lenticular or whatever it's um, like an embossed cover an embossed cover with like silver and red and it says truth or dare a critical madness he says have you ever heard of this now and i was a big b-movie fan but i had to admit like no i've never heard of this thing he we're watching this thing and he's just watching my reaction and i'm like what the fuck am i seeing looking at here <laughs> because the thing takes you on such a roller coaster it starts out and okay oh this is gonna be cheesy just there, there's some overacting and stuff like that but then there's some really like surreal bits i mean there's some really creepy hitchcockian mm-hmm. stuff in this thing yeah that is really odd and psychological and then after all that so you're thinking oh we're going on this kind of thought-provoking route uh makes sense you know my buddy seth is the one who introduced me to films like ninth configuration and stuff like that so i know he's a nope then it just goes all balls out insane and starts <laughs> turning into like, like a slasher film almost it is it is a slasher film i think but I, I think it becomes a slasher film and it becomes an absolutely like crazy one with like you know that really ramps up all the exploitation it 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 straddles like two worlds and it's so strange how it does it that it winds up at this level i think i kind of con- was concerning you with my like cryptic comments leading up to the episode where you thought that i was going to trash on this movie i'm not no 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 it reaches this level of insanity because it straddles these two things where yeah there's some parts of it where i'm laughing at it because it plays off so ridiculous but right. then, but, it, but it's part of the ride you know and we're watching this and we're having the best time he's singing the theme song at the end because he loves <laughs> that there's like this wonderful theme song I, I, I don't know wonderful isn't exactly how i would term well, it's, the, it's the like, end credits <laughs> it's like a, it's like it's like a cross between like something you'd hear in either an off officer or a gentleman or a james bond movie uh and um he's doing that he's like watching the credits and he's like pointing to the you know the credit for the grenade guy and he's saying look at that his name is asbestos felt oh my god his name is actually asbestos and yeah the guy's name is asbestos felt was the star of ritter's next film um, but um and uh which it just immediately became a big deal i only found out that there were sequels really after hooking up with you guys um, and wow, i had never shocking got, because the scene ne- especially wicked games i saw that tape everywhere i didn't see i by then i was yeah i know i that was not any anywhere around here and uh by and at that point then i just like i had meant to see them i never got around to them i'd seen truth or dare and i did and i have seen uh, as i said killing spree a few times which Derek wants to me to point out is not connected to the series. <laughs> it definitely is, even though it literally is one of my all-time favorite oh, it's, low-budget it's exploitation horror films of all. It's, it's I love Killing Spree. Yeah, so I watched. I've seen uh, that, and, I, and uh, this was actually because um, uh, I should say it, but Bizarre TV was running it of it this truth or dare so i oh, mean i interesting. was interesting interesting so i was so this is actually pro when i rewatched it for this show it's probably the fourth time i've seen it in a year 
<laughs> I don't I don't consider that a bad thing, man. I watch it at least Ed, once a year, at least. And it was it, it, it's it's I've seen it a bunch of times. It's a, I mean, it really stands out. And uh, yeah, I was uh, I was unaware of the sequels until a few years ago. Uh, my buddy Seth was unaware of the sequels until I just alerted him to him. <laughs> so wow. this is a great educational experience and a, a chance to uh, sing the praises of this movie that yeah i'll admit it i laughed my ass off at it when i saw truth or dare critical madness but it's not just because of the cheesiness it's because the film is freaking nuts and it's because the film is so freaking nuts that i think is why we're still talking about it more than 30 years later well it's not i i don't think it's just because it's nuts it's also because it's oddly really well made it's really well made it's well shot it like mark says it looks like a legitimate move like uh so quote unquote legitimate movie well, the um, transfers are awful but you can tell that if this was cleaned up because i only have the dvd i don't have the blu-ray so i don't know if srs really touched it up or not but the transfers are awful but you can tell that a lot of care was put into shooting this movie mm-hmm well, yeah, there, there's yeah. the, I mean, there's the shot early of them following a car, you know, like on the freeway. It, it's like a nice, legitimate framed while the car is moving, they're filming. And, you know, it, it just surprised me to see some of the shot, some of the shots that they did in here and the way it was edited surprised me quite a bit because, yeah, this is a solidly well-made film. I mean, the only thing that I could see that might turn some people off is maybe the lower quality of, of the production video part, but that's just because they were making it on a very limited budget. But everything else in this film is so solid. It surprised the hell out of me. The soundtrack is oddly affecting, even even though, you know, if you get past the it really like the soundscape that's made the whole first act of this movie. And I think, Scott, you brought up a really good point is that this film evolves with each act into a different kind of genre film in the first act, which is Mike Strauber as this kind of um, naive kind of romantic dude that it just has his world shattered that entire first act where once he finds out his, his wife is boning this, his friend, and he goes on this spiritual journey where he kind of connects the dots and how this had happened for an, an 18 year old, to put something like this together is always blown me away because there's a lot of nuance, even though, you know, the acting may be a little goofy and, uh, but the editing and the, um, the story just there, the, how it's put together, there's a lot of nuance and you kind of get into the headspace, which makes when he makes the leap over into the psychological horror which is the second act of the film, it isn't a stretch. You've been there. You know where he's going in his head. And once you you flip to that psychological horror, once it finally goes to batshit crazy, I'm a masked serial killer and I'm going to kill everything in my path, <laughs> you're, you're in. Care was made towards the characters and the evolution of the plot. That is the big thing about this movie that I've always, always loved. Mark? 
Yeah, I mean, the the arc of the character is impressive. I mean, for a film like this, I mean, like you said, it, it surprised me the span of time because after we get to that first act, which was a great setup. I mean, I didn't when when he he's sitting there and goes, oh oh, you want to dare me to rip my tongue out? And he actually he actually does. I'm like, oh shit, they went there, <laughs> you know they you know, and then it jumps and it's. 13 months later and i'm like wait what okay that shit really makes me laugh like every time that stock photo of the mental <laughs> yes. institution comes up and then the line there's dia or there's a like an interstitial lower yeah. third that comes by it just okay how many years later is this going to be <laughs> it almost plays out like a little ticker tape news crawl with a little beep 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 yeah. yep that's odd. <laughs> I, I I love that though bit because I'm like, oh, we we really jumped ahead here, you know. <laughs> and, um, yeah, you know, and we watch his, him go through this craziness, and then all of a sudden, he mutilates himself, and well, now he's got a mask. And I'm like, oh, okay. And <laughs> and then we get that third act where he's like running over babies and shit and i'm just like i love it though because it was like you were watching you know in this film we're talking what 86 here but here is a film that isn't just giving you boom here's the killer and you get the you know story and flashbacks we follow this character on his journey from becoming mild-mannered clark kent to you know batshit crazy guy who's shooting people up with Uduzi. I mean, you know, it's, it's like you you actually watch the evolution of this guy to become a slasher. So it's not just a slasher movie. You're with this character, with the Strawberry character. So by the third act, yeah, you're right there. You're invested in this character and you want to see where the hell this thing is going because you can't predict where it's going to go. There, the, I, I challenge someone to, if they never seen it before, to try to predict from when he finds his wife, who was a real bitch in the beginning, too, about, oh, well, you just need to get on with your life. I'm like, dude, it's been like two minutes since he found he out. literally you were- walked in and you were going to the bone zone. <laughs> yeah, right? You know, we, we go from that to him being a masked killer. It just, it was taking you on this journey that I, I really didn't expect, especially for that time period. Yeah, um, I think one of the main things about this series that differentiates it from most of the other slashers of the era, because Tim Ritter will be the first to tell you that he is an immense fan of those 80s horror films, 70s and 80s horror films. And although he takes cues from those films, his films, at least this Truth or Dare series, focuses far more on characters and drama and the struggles of neurosis with the characters and what they're going through and how these um, extreme situations break their psyche and turn them into raving lunatics. Um, This movie though is it's, it's hard to find a movie that's at one point really serious like seriously trying to be a horror film but then also kind of silly Mm -hmm. and kind of fun and uh doesn't i know some people really think this is a shitty film and i don't quite get it 
because every time I watch it, I'm like, damn, this is actually a really fucking good movie. But I can I can kind of see where people are coming from. I just don't tend to agree with that whatsoever. I, I can see where they're coming from, too, because, I mean, it does have its flaws but i mean like i said i love it for its insanity uh there's uh sequences especially at the beginning where it's kind of padded out a lot for instance when he does catch his wife and the, he storms out and she says find a thing it follows it and she's as she's standing at the door and he runs out he gets in his car pulls out drives off into the, to the to the distance and then the guy who he's with says something that is not important like you could have cut that like about at least 30 seconds before you did you know there's a lot of stuff like that at the beginning i can see that i can see how people are caught off guard by the complete tonal shift uh uh in how the characters are because one moment the characters okay they're they're kind of acting like normal people, and then all of a sudden you're in this twilight zone. I think that there's a real shift uh, from the conclusion of the campfire scene to when it goes 12 months later in the tone. But, I mean, this is part of the reason I like it, but, I mean, I can see why people have problems. Uh, and uh, it goes right around to these doctors describing who the, can they let out because we have budget cuts and they're always talking about people who have like <laughs> murdered all their children and done all this crazy shit people that you would never let uh, out i think it's perfect that the film actually goes crazy first of all none of the every single one of these films the authority figures are always horrible and they don't behave like human beings no so obviously i think ritter Never having met the man, Ritter actually seems to have some issues and maybe even making some statements about authority figures, I think, uh, because, I mean, it's just so beyond the pale how they re how they behave in this movie. And uh, this is right that they, that this should be like where the film turns, because isn't this the way what we always think when we see like a slasher film or, or some crazed killer film and then he's locked up? He hasn't technically killed anybody at this point. He's then he's locked up, and then they have a thing like, "Well, maybe we can let him go." But in real life, you're like, "There's no freaking way in hell he would be let go." No, it, it was because they had budget cutbacks, and they needed they needed to transfer people. And he's like, "Well," the the one goes like, "Well, maybe we could let him go." I mean, is he really rehabilitated? And they're like, "Well, no." Well, why not? <laughs> and he immediately goes to kill his wife, like immediately. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it, it's it's outside of the realm of reality. But I think that at that point, the entire film is outside of the realm of reality. So it's fine <laughs> because, <laughs> because I think by that point, every, like it's like, oh, it's not just this guy that's crazy. The rest of the world has to be crazy as well in order for this man to still be walking free you know yeah i think really the only thing for me that that doesn't work is that it just ends yeah like there's no real conclusion to the film it just all of a sudden we get the the that cold uh you know stock still of the hospital and we think oh here's another six months down the road nope then all of a sudden we hear, oh, I've got the critical madness. 
Yes. Oh, well, that's that's a lovely singing voice there you got, Derek. Well, it's Metzed. I'm gonna I'm gonna put I'm gonna call the Metropolitan Opera like right now. Uh, the oh yeah, those uh, the, like you know they're better, much better than my pipes. I can tell you that much. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean it's like it's just a. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it does just end. The ending also never quite made sense to me, which I guess is 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 appropriate since the second one, the ending doesn't make sense either to me. But uh, the, uh, <laughs> but the first one, because um, are we covering the ending now or? We okay. can cover whatever right. we want, okay. Scott. Okay. Okay. All right. okay. Well. All right. Wild West time. It. Awesome. Here we go. Well, I mean, it's because. And, you know, it, it, nothing is logical in this movie at all. But, I mean, even I was like, come on, wait, how? Because the deal is that he's going to kill his wife. It takes them the whole movie to realize he might be going to kill his wife <laughs> when he has already tried to kill his wife. I mean, this Once, is something yeah. that he already tried to do. So, of course, that's going to be where he's going again. Um, and so... He's approaching the shower or something like that, or he's gonna catch this. He's gonna catch the the wife, you know, as she's gonna get into the shower. And no, it's a, it was the cops waiting for him all along. Boom, boom, boom. We got him or something like that. If I'm remembering it correctly, I don't know. Yeah, the cop is uh, is actually in the shower, like we're setting up a, a psycho sequence. Yeah, yeah it's like a psycho sequence and stuff like that, and it kind of will riff on Nighthawks also, and. Um, I'm like, okay, great. And then he finds it says like had the the woman waiting, I guess plucked her right out of the shower and had her wait in the closet. And she got out and she's dead in the closet. I okay, like I've not I never got that. Like, wait, wait, how how did he kill her in the what he killed her in the closet and like just like shoved her back in there before <laughs> and then decided he was gonna go and kill her again in the shower or in the shower. <laughs> Made no sense to me. I don't get it. I, I was like, wait, wait. <laughs> movie, I've forgiven you a hell. Uh, I've been really lenient <laughs> with you, movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I forgive think you a lot. <laughs> if you were going to sit and talk to Tim about this movie in particular, because of his age, the producers did not trust him. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of trouble with certain aspects of creating this film because of the money that was involved. Um, the producers were constantly butting heads with him in order to like undermine and take over uh, the entire film. And they recut some certain stuff. And he, I mean, if you go back, if you uh, listeners, you go to astroradioz.com, go to the past episodes, go to the bottom, go to the Astro Radio Z classic episodes, the Tim Ritter interview I did, I believe, holy shit, it's already been four years it was um, an early one because I 2013 or I start, yeah 2013 holy shit it, it he goes through a bunch of that or you can even listen to a commentary I believe uh, he's done about it where he sits and talks about you know unfortunately because of my age I couldn't really fight back on a lot of this stuff so some of the film is a little disjointed and it is, isn't really Tim's fault so Mark what did you think of how this ended it. It was a bit odd. <laughs> the the last couple minutes, uh, I was you know fully into it. And this third act is really plays out like a almost like a crazy you know eighties horror 
action film hybrid i'm like holy shit they actually got a guy burning on you know guy on fire like wow okay i didn't expect that stunt you know and that then we get into this final sequence of like the last three or four minutes and i was like that was odd yeah the the you know okay she was in the closet when did he get to kill her first though the closet wasn't in the bathroom the closet is actually i think in another part of the house it is yeah you're correct you know so that part i kind of pieced together it it, the way it was cut you know way it was put together it felt almost like that closet was right near the bathroom but when i watched it at first it didn't make and i'm like oh wait the closet's in another part of the house and then they kind of give it a almost lack of a better term a hollywood ending uh it, it was a bit abrupt and it felt up until that point, it hadn't felt really cliche. It was just off the rails. And then all of a sudden, it kind of hit this beat-for-beat standard 80s horror ending. And I'm like, oh, didn't quite expect it to end like that. I was thinking of something more, a little more out there. And instead, we kind of get that. And now that makes sense that you were saying he was butting heads with producers because the ending felt a lot more standard. Well, it also feels very abrupt. Like yeah, it yeah. doesn't feel like it's the end. It feels like we were going to get at least another five to 10 minutes of this movie. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, it is abrupt. And, and yeah, you don't get any follow through after seeing some legs walk past and you're like, Oh, we're done. <laughs> and as, as you know, and to be fair, by that point, as I've said, the film has really gone off the rails. It's really gone full crazy. I mean, we've actually watched a, you know, police officer, uh, not check that he actually has the killer cornered in like an outhouse or something or other or a shed. <laughs> oh yeah, firing oh. It wildly into the into the into the shed, setting it on fire, setting it on fire, <laughs> and then it turns out, oh no, he actually killed an innocent guy. It's actually oh, this bomb there, there, which they were able to piece together right away because they can do dental records right at the scene. Yeah, it was um, just a skeleton, a charred skeleton. Well, yeah, obviously, like, this is the local drunk bum. He, he yeah. must have passed out in here. How, how do you know that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. By that point, we've already seen that. So when I say like that, the ending didn't make sense. I mean, it made, it didn't make sense in in a bigger, in a slightly bigger way than the rest of the movie doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know? And again, it's part, like, I am being, I'm so nice to this movie because let's face it's it. It's charming, it, dude. This yeah, it's so charming. If this, was like, if this was a $10 million, you know, completely, you know, thought out and like just like oh we we planned everything possible so we could reach the widest audience possible and it plant and it and it played off shit like this i'd condemn it because it was crass and it was crude this one i loved the spirit of it so i mean it works for this so i liked a lot I think a lot can be said about these really small micro budget films uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s is that and we've said this before on these shot on video episodes is that you can feel the passion in these movies. And it's very rare that you find one that even though it is a little wonky at times, 
you rarely find one that hits on all cylinders the way truth or dare a critical madness does it is seriously one of my favorite movies when i was a kid when this came out i was nine years old that's dating me so you can figure out do the math and uh i saw this tape every time my dad would take me to the hardware store I would walk into this hardware <laughs> store and they had a little tiny uh, video section and they had truth or dare or critical madness there. Now, obviously at nine years old, my dad wasn't going to be renting me truth or dare or critical madness. Uh, but I remember looking at that tape cover, that VHS cover that embossed silver and the blood with the razor and you turn on the back and there's explosions and there's a dude with the copper mask. And I was just like, fuck i need to see this movie <laughs> and when i finally did i watched it a ton because it's a fun movie so let's go ahead and let's wrap up truth or dare critical madness and let's let's give uh our thumbs up thumbs down mark the movie man ultimately final thoughts how'd you come out on this oh thumbs up definitely uh especially for shot on video time it came out everything behind it yeah, thumbs up. It it should be watched by anyone who's who's into the micro budget stuff and want to see how er, early stuff like this was made. Yeah, check it out. Scott Davis. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I said, you know, it's it, 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 it you, you not everybody is going to dig this. Some people are going to grow really impatient really fast. But uh, for me, I thought it straddles this line between actually being really clever and really psychological and just being so balls out insane that's the thing that and i love films that go that crazy uh that yeah i, I dig this one quite a, li- a bit so definitely a thumbs up for me dude this is the movie that made me a lifelong tim ritter fan after this movie and reading about him in fangoria it came from the underground I subsequently went on to watch and look forward to every one of his films from Killing Spree to Creep to Wicked Games to all of them, man. I This is the movie that started my obsession with really micro-budget, low-budget direct-to-video stuff. So let's go ahead and move forward and let's talk about Wicked Games from 1994, which is Truth or Dare 2. In the summer of 1992, I began to make plans for making the sequel to Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness. Unfortunately, I couldn't call it Truth or Dare 2, for Madonna had stolen the title for a 1991 concert film. This sequel merely mines the same territory as Truth or Dare and has a new set of characters that respond to similar circumstances. The common link in the movies is the Copper Mask Killer, whom I've dubbed the Avenger of Lost Loves.
Now, Mark, do you think you can explain what the plot of Wicked Games is? Uh, <laughs> um, do you want to try it? Um, oh, wow. Okay. Um, sure. There, there's... Whew, okay. Um, <laughs> there's killings going on once again in Sunnyvale. These killings are very familiar to the killings that were happening at the end of Truth or Dare 1, but people are wondering how is that possible? And so once again, a lot of people think our favorite guy with the copper mask is out and killing, but dun, 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 there may be more than meets the eye to these deaths as these brutal deaths, the body counts rise and people are wondering just who is committing these murders. And as the movie plays out, we find out that there is truly more behind the mask than what we originally thought. Wow, Mark. <laughs> Talk about not giving anything away with that, <laughs> with that synopsis. That's Sorry. actually a really good one. That's cool. <laughs> Sorry, I uh, forced a habit with doing synopsis for my movie review show. I try not to give much away, so I apologize. <laughs> good, no, good job, dude. That's awesome. Um, Wicked Games, uh, obviously 1994, came out almost 10 years later. Immediately will slap most fans of the first film right across the face. With if boobs. you aren't ready for extremely low-grade video stock, <laughs> you are going to hate Wicked Games. Mm. Now, I don't hate Wicked Games. <laughs> um, because if you get past the shortcomings and limitations of the video stock and the budget you will find one of the most batshit, strange, deranged, sadistic, weird, sexually deviant films <laughs> that's come out of the underground. This film is as bonkers as the first one, if not more bonkers than the first one. Um, the first film had a long-stay actor of Tim Ritter's films, Joel Weinkoop, in a very small supporting role as kind of um, a helper in the mental institution. This film, Joel Weinkoop plays a detective named Dan, whose friend Gary, not unlike the person, not unlike Mike Strauber from part one, walks in on his wife boning his best friend. Now, uh, Dan decides to let Gary for the time being come in and stay with him while he tries to figure out what he's going to do with his life. Uh, Dan slowly starts to notice that Gary is becoming unraveled. Now, every last character in this movie is sexually deviant in some way. <laughs> yeah. And it, it seems to be one of the major themes that goes on in this very disjointed, very dark film. Scott, what did you think of how dark this movie was compared to the first one? You know, and there, there was like a, a lot of the, there was some of the cra craziness like there was in the first one. But I think that 
uh, because I guess building on the reputation stuff and he's he had done other like crazy type films. There's more attention paid to the psychological aspect of it all the way throughout the film and everybody is somehow uh a, like a, like you say a sexual deviant somehow uh which was really intriguing to me it actually kind of reminded me of a screenplay i wrote long long time ago where it was involving this person that was trying to protect this uh woman from a stalker but the person that's protecting her is also a serial killer uh you know and which is like the type of thing you come out up when you just say yeah this will be a good idea i think i'll put in all my ideas into the movie <laughs> and i think that that's what ritter was doing with a lot of these movies is yeah. that when you, is that when it comes time to make a sequel uh, a lot of times you think oh i could do this or i could do this or i could do this and he said, oh, I could do this. I could do this. I could do – yes, I'm going to do all of that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's what he did here. So, I mean, it is bonkers, but it's in a, bonkers in a different way. It's bonkers in actually ratcheting up what a weird uh, psychological horror film it is, uh, which is not to say it doesn't have plenty of goofy bits with scantily clad women and like ridiculous setups and what have you. It's just that I think that this is much more of a dark uh, psychosexual film than the first one. Absolutely. I mean, right off the bat, it starts off with the scene in which Gary walks in on his wife, who's bone and his best friend, and he literally at gunpoint makes them finish yeah. while he watches. Mark, what did you think of this? <laughs> yeah, it, it opens up a lot darker. And I'm like, oh, man, he didn't he didn't actually kill him which which then you know puts you into what what's wrong with the mullet man uh it is a glorious it, mullet it's a, <laughs> it's, it was needed its own credit i think because it was fantastic but yeah it starts off dark and then you know he's spending that night at his friends and they have the suicide sequence and then you're just like oh okay this is this is gonna be a different film than the first one i'm like but you know and then you thought think about it for a minute well how does this all tie together and then when he starts seeing the copper masky and you're like okay though i did kind of pick up on the twist only because uh the hairstyles changed with the see guy. that was that's one of the main things that ruins the entire end of this movie and mm -hmm. in subsequent sequels they would fix that by making the copper uh, face actually wear a ski mask under right. Uh, so that you couldn't tell whose hair it was. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was gonna say because I kind of picked up real quick after the second. I'm like, oh, okay. I kind of see where it was going. I wasn't quite sure who it, it was. was. Joe Winecoop the entire time. Every kill it was. was Joe Winecoop. But you know, but, I, I didn't. Yeah, I, was, I was noticing that. I was noticing that too as a way to, and I thought that was a way to pinpoint who the killer really was or something. Kind of like, but. Like you say, it's always played the same guy, so it's a cheat, you know. And he does a few cheats in this movie, like that. I like. There's another sequence. Um, if you don't mind me skipping around, one of the people that is obviously unhinged is a psychologist who is in bed with this woman and everything like that. And you think that 
he's talking about this person and she, to this person and she's going to make him pay for sex and she's doing all this stuff da, 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 and he's in bed with this woman and then it cuts to a, a wider shot and you see that he's actually in bed with a mannequin well yes but the close up wasn't the, so close that you couldn't tell that it was actually was a woman in the bed were they completely like with blonde hair instead of dark hair and everything like that that he was talking to? But when it went to a wide shot, it was somebody different. So you're like, okay, so do we chalk this up as that he was like hallucinating that it was this woman with the blonde hair? Or was that just kind of a little cheat, you know, about to throw the audience off, which is what he does, I think, with the by having the killer always, you know always be the Joel Weinkoop every time mm-hmm. he's on, but there's always question about, well, wait, but seriously, who is the killer? You know, there's lots of things that did that. Uh, if you watch, go back to basic instinct. I, I haven't seen that in 20 years, so it's hard to remember, but I distinctly remember trying to see like, okay, if I look at the beginning scene and look at the woman's breasts, I'll be able <laughs> I'll be able I'm to be able to deduce use my Batman like detective skills are, I'll on these breasts. Are, I'll be able to tell is that Sharon Stone's breast or is it, are they the breasts of her friends? <laughs> I remember doing this back in the day, and it turned out that like, oh no, actually, because their breasts are so similar in the movie, you can't tell. Shit, you got me again, Verhoeven. I've been foiled and, by these tits. Damn, damn you, you crafty Dutch madman! And you um, some mystery, I, Scoob. I, I think I don't remember that episode of Scooby-Doo. And the real killer is rips off the shirt. Oh, damn, I can't Wait. tell. Hold on, Wait. come here, Velma. Rip. No, come here, damn. Ah, I can't tell. <laughs> the titties all look alike. Well, it was kind of it was kind of a similar thing, except um, this is like one of the only parts of the movie where tits don't play a factor. And that you would be looking at this. You know, everybody has their own like hang-up in this movie, and it's always like a sexual hang-up. It's always about women. This is kind of going to a lot of the themes of this. Some it, it it's so much that it will it does actually make you a little bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. and like I how think you that is it. also that is the point i think it really is is that well kind of like we had talked a number of episodes ago when we were doing the john waters uh, uh episodes about a dirty shame and that movie is directly speaking about the fact that everybody in their own way is sexually deviant and has their own kinks and their own preferences and their own things going on that they don't reveal to society. This film speaks to that exact same thing, but not done in a comedy way. It speaks to the fact that repression of sex sometimes leads to people uh, having neurosis about these sexual um, things, these things that they get, these kinks that they get so deeply involved in that it consumes their entire lives. And most of the time, not in a good way. Well, yes, and but also like it also like is how it paints women, basically. Oh yeah, because like, all, all oh, the yeah. people we we are focused on are men and the way that they because they are so messed up or the way that that all these people view women whether they're supposed to be the killers or the heroes or whatever you think they are i'm i'm being vague too it paints it with a like a brush like yeah but every single one of these people hates women somehow 
Yeah. Well, they feel like, like they've been victimized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they feel like women are all cheaters. They're all all backstabbers. They're all uh, whores. They're all these horrible things. And so it always and the movie is always forcing you to see life through one of their sets of eyes. And like I said, that makes it really uncomfortable to watch you know at times well you even you even get the boyfriend in there who's not part of kind of the three main male characters we end up following we get the one boyfriend in there who's jealous because his girlfriend has the hots for our serial killer Mm. she wants to marry him right and you know the boyfriend's jealous she's like well she wants him to like dress up like the boy you know like the serial killer that, that was the next one wasn't it or is that the next one or is that this one I got the two. Maybe I got the two mixed up. I think you got the two mixed up. That, oh, that I believe that's sorry. screaming for sanity. I, I thought I, I, I thought I blacked out for a second there. Like, oh my, my apologies. No, no, well, that is also that is something that would have been. That is something that would have been directly in line with Wicked Games, and there are themes yeah. that run through every single okay. one of these movies. And I think sexual uh, sexuality and repression. And uh, the way sex is used as a weapon is a theme that runs through all of these movies. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, that is in the next one. I I, I kind of crossed the two. Uh, this one had the three hookers getting killed. Um, right. That's right. This is, and it has one of my most favorite deaths in it, though. <laughs> Are you talking about the sprinkler? Yes. Love Talk about it, Mark. I love the bloody sprinkler. Well, well, our, our golden, our, our copper mask killer goes in, and he takes out uh, this one uh, female, and he he throws her down on on the lawn, and it's got one of those sprinklers that pop up when the water starts going through it. And it was popped up and she falls on it. And as she's sitting there dying, the blood starts shooting out of the sprinkler head. Like, so you got this blood just spurting everywhere. And it was just an amazing sequence the way they did that. I'm like, I'm sitting here in my mind going, that's pretty freaking cool. How the hell they do it? Yeah, it's a great special effect. And on top of that, I think, you know, all of the killings in this movie, even though it's obvious it's Joel Weinkoop the entire yeah. time, even though if you watch the movie, it's very obvious who was the killer for the most part. Um, but the the way that uh, Copper Mask is shown as this kind of like the almost like a Jason character. Yep. Through this movie. Um, I One thing that always unnerved me and some people will probably would disagree and think it's kind of hokey whatnot was every time copper mask is killing someone, you hear this really affected voice going, die, die. And I, 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 when it combined with the music and everything, I think that shit is so creepy. It's so fucking creepy. Scott, what do you think about the deaths and copper mask in this thing? I, I think the die, die, die definitely worked, uh, here. Uh, I mean, I think it was effective and everything like that. I think it, I think that like you mentioned uh, the, about the, yeah, I think you mentioned the soundscape of the previous film. I think that that continued. I mean, obviously he was dealing with budgets that were less 
you know, as it, things went on, you know, the nineties, I listen. I was able to listen to some of you, some of the Tim Ritter interview. I did not make it all the way through, unfortunately, cause I was away for a few days, but, um, he had mentioned that the nineties were kind of a lean period mm-hmm. for video production and such. And I know that the part four was, had a very low budget. You know, I, I think that you, you were talking about, he did a lot with what he had. And part of that was the soundscape. Part of that was that the effects were always good and if they when even when the effects in certain movies weren't good they were always disarming so that you they they like just like they shook you i mean they they weren't something that just happened you know uh i've seen people try to do shot on video slasher homages just in the last few years and what do they do they take a uh, they take like a craft services knife uh kind of similar to what they did in the witchcraft movies and uh they basically just stab random people and have them fall down and clutch their chest and maybe like gurgle up some blood. And you, you forget about it as soon as it's happened. These yeah, it's lazy. You. It's lazy. These, these, they catch you right away. He knows exactly what he's doing. He says, yeah, truth or terror, people loved this because it was so nuts and everything like that. But he's also exploring these themes. He continues to explore the themes while having these absolutely insane effects like like. And I can totally see how someone could like watch one of these movies. And uh, I don't know why I didn't do it myself until now, but I would want to say like, I wonder what he's going to come up with for his next movie. And not in the same way as the Friday the 13th films, but like kind of like on this more like, I'm just so impressed he can do this with what he has. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know? and, and he did that here. Uh, I'm going to, tell you right now i i like this movie better than the first one i think this was a really well done movie um even though i have to admit uh, in the last five minutes of the movie i have no idea what the hell's going on well let's go ahead and let's talk about the last five <laughs> minutes of this movie where it basically kind of flips the bird to the story as almost as if it was a fever dream of mike strauber in the mental institution and yeah. the three main characters who we go through this entire revelation sequence at the fire pit from part one where they all basically admit that they were the killers <laughs> that they everybody was the killer yeah. <laughs> everyone was the killer <laughs> And in the end, just kind of ends on this where the three main characters we've known to be a psychologist and two cops turn out to all be clinical doctors. That that just threw me because I'm like, wait, are why are they calling them doctors when they were cops? And uh, now that you mentioned that it could be a fevered dream of strawberry, that makes sense now. I I didn't pick up on that at the end, though. That end, yeah, again, with the ending, kind of confused me a little going, wait, huh? <laughs> it also would explain a lot of the psychosexual things that are going on in the film. Right. Because Mike Strauber obviously has very acute um, hangups about sex due to the first film. Mm-hmm. Right. And I thought that, you know, when I saw that, I'm like, oh, it was all this. None of this really happens, which would, again, in certain movies would piss me off here because of the weird, twisty, turny nature of it. It works. But I'm like, but what confused me was I was like, was this a fantasy of Mike Strover where he imagined his doctors were these killers or 
was it one of the doctors imagining it or was it uh, all of the doctors kind of in their own way imagining it? I couldn't know whose he- who's twisted head have I been in throughout this whole movie or, is or, what was, was getting me. Or how about it's none of them. How about if it was the woman who's in enters the room, if it was in her head? It, yeah, I don't know. That that know one that seems the biggest problem. stretch of them all. I know. I know. That's a stretch. But it is, it is a stretch. But I'm, honestly, I don't know how much how how you can really say anything is too much of a stretch. Right. It's true. <laughs> I'll be honest we, with you. I think if anything, going into this for the layman that is just a general horror fan, they they have an upward uh, hill climb to face. They have to one put up with uh, with a very low budget, with um, a film stock that isn't necessarily sexy to look at, and also a very nonlinear story. Mm-hmm. So if you can get past those things, I I don't think this is better than part one, but I do feel it's close. It's really close. It definitely takes way more chances. I was. It's a more interesting movie. It's a more intriguing movie. The other one, I mean, yeah, it's it's impressive. Like I say, it's got a special place in my heart. Um, it's really bonkers. But this one, I'm like, just looking at the themes of the movie and looking at how you had to be in these people's heads and stuff like that. And it's a more disturbing film it's a more interesting film to me than the first it shows the maturity like it shows the evolution of a filmmaker like yeah he's trying new things he's not just remaking the film again i mean there's still kooky stuff going on here there's this great like sequence with this one woman and she's doing a strip tease and they have a tv on in the background and i swear to god it looks like they were watching scrambled porn (laughs) <laughs> on the TV because it's just a scrambled old scrambled analog picture like you'd get like if you tried to tune in on a cable channel that you weren't allowed to get <laughs> but I mean like it's uh, it's just you know but I mean so there's like cookie stuff in it but it is it does show a certain maturity just in the themes and everything on this it was just really intriguing to see like where he was going with this movie yeah it's really out there um they did remake this. Well, I don't know if I could say remake. Tim introduced to me when I was in contact with him about uh, Truth or Dare 4, introduced me to and sent me a remix re-edit of this film called Wicked Game Snuff Edition. Oh. In which a, f- a fan took this movie and took a bunch of like industrial prototypical, like early nineties industrial type music, like kind of like the stuff we saw and heard in the Gore Horror series, mm-hmm. and then remixed this movie using the original like elements of the film. Like some of this, the effects work is elongated, and this it's nonlinear. It's more of like kind of a music video for about ninety minutes. But it really changes the perception of what the theme of this movie was and how really dark this movie is when you watch the original version of it. So if you, any of you listeners out there are interested in this, definitely watch the original version of Wicked Games, which you can find on DVD for relatively cheap. And I believe Ron Bonk put this out on SRS 
yeah. on Blu-ray. Yeah, um, there's so, all there's all four. He's got a set that's all the the whole uh, series, I think, on Blu-ray. Okay, cool, awesome. That's awesome. Um, but definitely, I would just for curiosity's sake check out Snuff Edition. It's a weird remix that is more it's kind of a a thing you put on the background at parties but if as a fan of this film and this series it really takes the darkness of this film and ratches it up to 20 it is a creepy fucking version of this movie but uh regardless let's push past that um and let's go ahead and uh give our final thoughts on wicked games mark how did you come out on wicked games uh, again, it was a surprise. Is darker film. I did like the story. I liked it wasn't a rehash and the kind of a little bit of surrealism to it. Uh, yeah, it, it you and you can see things were learned from the first one to this one uh, as far as the storytelling goes, uh, because things felt a little bit tighter in this one than in the first one. So yeah, I mean, you watched the first one, definitely check this one out. Cause it's, it's not just a rehash of the first one. It's actually its own standalone movie. And yet it works into this mythology that he's building of the copper face. I think that the ending will definitely not make any sense. Yeah. If you didn't watch the first film. Yeah. Agreed. Completely. Completely. Scott. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's got kooky vets to this thing. It's got goofy vets to it. Uh, there's even a riff that also makes no sense and is kind of stupid, silly. Uh, on the shower scene we were talking about in the first film, there's a riff on that where they kind of t- turn that one around. Uh, but yeah, it's like I said, you know, I think that this is it, it's a more interesting film. You're not going to get a shot of like a a, a car like like mowing down a baby carriage in this one but you're gonna get some like a kind of a weird psychosexual kink uh shot on video really low budget film that has a lot of dopey goopy bits but also has a lot little bit going on underneath the surface i think that if he had uh inspiration from uh some Hitchcockian things, as I said in the first film, he had a lot of De Palma going on, inspiration going on in this film. Yeah. The way he, the way it, it goes with the twists, the turns, the uh, not knowing if what you're seeing is reality or not, and also having all the uh, kinks and hangups uh, in in the uh, in several of the characters uh, along the way. I, I think I think Wicked Games was a really interesting movie i I recommend it yeah for a low budget no budget film it is insanely interesting and we didn't talk about i just want to end this on the new version of the copper mask in this Mm, movie mm -hmm. was that cool as shit or what yeah i (laughs) i I dug the little bit more streamlined look to it you know giving you the idea no this isn't you know, you you knew it wasn't going to be Strawberry, you, you know, I, I, but I liked that. I liked that that it was I liked the new mask <laughs> quite a bit. Scott, did you like the new mask? It's fine. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I noticed it was a new mask and I, I think I kind of liked it, maybe liked it a little better. But I, I, I would be lying if I said I gave a whole lot of thought to it, honestly. So. Well, it's not really the centerpiece of the film. 
No, but I mean, like, you know, it's, I don't know, it, it's all right. I mean, I guess, you know, the first one and, you know, finding out, you know, that, you know, where they were coming from on the first one, I, the first one's mask did look really clunky and blocky, which actually kind of helped the look of that film. Because if you ask me that look of the, the film, even though it's shot on 16 and everything like that, it's everything in there is like is like the ugliest, uh, most boring brown beige shit you'd ever see in the 80s in that first movie. I mean, it's really blocky, ugly stuff in that first movie. That's kind of the look of that film. And so that mask went along with it. This one kind of went along with like, hey, it's the 90s now. Good news. No more, uh, no more Reagan Bush. Here we go. <laughs> we got a new slicker, <laughs> slicker mask going on here as we, you know, um, molest and uh, murder all these uh, unsuspecting women that we think have done wrong. <laughs> right. Well, that mask, I, I, I think the mask of, of this movie and the subsequent movies is angry looking mm -hmm. and tough. I love this copper mask in this movie and moving on to Truth or Dare 3, where it'll move over there as well. So let's go ahead and let's move on to 1998 Screaming for Sanity, Truth or Dare 3. Some feelings of hate and rage. Never die. Now, Scott, would you please tell my listeners what is the plot of part three? Oh, well, let me think here. Okay, remember how in the first movie, anybody who's seen that, there is a sequence in which uh, Mike is gone, going on his killing spree and probably one of the craziest money shot things that has nothing to do with the story. He just mows through a woman and her baby who's – she's like pushing this baby in a baby carriage, and she he mows them both down and backs over them, and it's really bloody and shocking, and you can't believe what you've just seen, and it has nothing to do with this film. It's totally gratuitous. Well, now it has actually something to do with the film uh, because we now have uh, catch up with the husband – that was, uh, you know, the husband of the woman and the father of the kid, supposedly. 
uh, who um, ever since then, like 12 years ago, has been kind of nuts and kind of dealing with all these feelings and he's hallucinated and uh, doesn't know how to, you know, is having trouble dealing with what happened all those years ago. And uh, he's finally being set free. Uh, and, but, and, but as he is set free, he starts getting visions of his dead wife who says that the only way to make this right is to take revenge on all these people who are suddenly becoming rich off the truth or dare killings from the first film. People who are, you know, making money by exploiting the true crime market and selling serial killer memorabilia. People who are uh, in love with the serial killer idea and people who are like writing books and making movies and whatnot. You can't let them exploit this way. You have to take take them out and I dare you to put on the mask. That's one of the two stories going on in this movie. The other being uh, that we catch up with Joel Weinkoop once again, this time still in his doctor role from the last movie. In fact, the movie actually picks up from the last scene of the uh, movie. He has uh, been disbarred for physically abusing Mike Strover in, uh, in, uh, uh, in the uh, in sanit sanitarium or whatever, and he is having trouble trying to come to grips with that, and he might be losing his sanity as well. So it's a thing about will his sanity hold out, and will he be able to reach out to this new killer in time? Uh, that's what I can come up with. Oh, it's absolutely what this movie's about, and uh, this Yay! movie, this movie. <laughs> beats Rob Zombie to the punch of Halloween 2 by almost a decade. <laughs> because the fact that this film now takes a, uh, takes a step outside of the really deeply psychological bent of part two and part one and starts to include the outside world into this really insular story that we've been kind of dealing with up until now. This don't take that as me saying that there still isn't a bunch of really weird, surreal, um, like introspective things and sexually deviant things that are definite holdovers from the last film. This is kind of like screaming for sanity to me is kind of like um, a pairing of the first two films. Like for for my buck, this is probably my least favorite of the series, just because it doesn't seem to know at times what it wants to be. Does it want to be this really weird, surreal, dark movie? Does it want to be a really plot heavy, um, story first kind of ABC type horror film and police procedural? Or does it want to be a slasher film? <laughs> like, I think Screaming for Sandy, if you were going to say anything about it, is kind of confused. Did you kind of get that impression, Mark? Yeah, I did kind of in this one. It it, it didn't feel quite as, I mean, I, I still, I'll, I'll put it right on, I still enjoyed it. But yeah, it did seem a little bit less of knowing where it wanted to go. 
And so, and like I said, what threw me again was the fact that we have a detective now, the doctor, which I didn't quite understand at the beginning. And I marathoned these. So watching them back to back, it kind of threw me for a little bit going, wait, oh, okay, he's a doctor now. You know, I, I like the message and the story going on behind it, but it did feel just a bit less focus. And yeah, you get, you know, you get these darker moments, but then you get the memorabilia guy's death, which, you know, kind of feels like Pee Wee Herman's death in, I mean, uh, Paul Rubin's death in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, drop an Alka-Seltzer in his mouth and just let him roll around on the right. floor a little bit. You know, and, and you think he's dead and, and then, oh, no, wait, no, he's a hard guy to kill. You know, I, I did like, you know, and you get the little humor bits like that, that we had a little bit more, I would say, in the first one than we did the second one. So, yeah, it, it felt a little less focused on what kind of film it really wanted to be. You know, I still enjoyed it, but yeah, of the three, this one felt a little bit looser, like not quite as tight as the other two. Yeah, there was a lot going on in this movie. There was just so many diverging stories where uh, Wiki Games, even though it was disjointed and nonlinear and we were following like four or five characters, there was really like two or three different stories going on in this. But you hang out with one character for so long, you think, okay, well, this is what the movie's going to be. And then it just totally shifts on a dime. Mm-hmm. It, and it, that didn't work as well for me with this movie. I like this movie as well because I think there are certain sequences, mostly with uh, the father and his kind of like descent into madness where mm-hmm. he, the only way he feels anything is to have hookers come by his room and cut him up. Well, they, he also has them, the, the poor ladies have to dance through a strobe, which kind of was seizure inducing. But other than that, <laughs> yeah, it was really creepy. You still had that sexual deviance from two, but then, you know, you get a kind of a joke where he grabs Jack the Ripper's coat, and, you know, so adds a little humor like in one. And uh, yeah, it. You feel you feel for the dad. I really wanted. I really kind of wish it would have stuck just with the dad, because I thought that story was interesting. Yeah, I I think you know the the whole Joel Winecoop character is a little underbaked. Uh, uh, Scott, what do you think about any of this? I disagree. Uh, it's uh, I thought. I mean, I I didn't think it was quite as good as the last one. Uh, I think that it kind of. Comparing it to a genre that is as far removed from this as possible, it's kind of like those uh, superhero sequels. Like whenever they would do another Batman movie back in the Mm -hmm. day, Mm -hmm. uh, they would always add characters to it. Mm -hmm. And so so it's like, okay, we got the Joker. Great. Okay, well, well, now we got Catwoman and the Penguin. Okay, okay. And then we got, uh, you know, the Riddler and Two-Face and Robin. And and then we've got, you know – all them plus Batgirl plus Mr. Freeze plus this plus Bane plus Poison and it kind of falls under its weight. I don't think this movie is quite there, but you could kind of see it that it was just kind of expanding from uh, the varying storylines of what he was exploring with the last film 
and he was kind of expanding that even more. And I think it was it was teetering the edge. I will say that it was teetering the edge of getting weighted down by that. And uh, but uh, right now, uh, nah, I thought I thought it was. I I still think this was an effective movie. It, there's um, the thing is, is that it would change the tone in mid scene. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I can see that if every problem. Let's all like just say it right now. The biggest laugh of the movie. You have this character, and you're following him. My God, can you even imagine a tragedy like this man is dealing with? Uh, that his you know wife and kid were just taken out like, you know, by this killer, and now you have to watch every day as these people are becoming famous and stuff. Uh, uh, I don't think uh, yeah, it does predate Halloween too, but let's also think that he's also touching upon themes that were prevalent in the, that day, by the way, of, uh, oh, absolutely. you know, uh, Charlie Manson was, you know, they were releasing his CD at this time. Uh, uh, Axl Rose was wearing him on a shirt in the early 90s and recovering his music. Uh, uh, you, uh, and, you know, Natural Born Killers came out like a couple of years before this came out. So, but um in this scene, like you're dealing with this guy who's dealt with all this stuff, and then he has to watch the people become famous and everything like that. And what's he see? He looks in the baby carriage. He sees this like hilarious looking mangled baby. Oh, you yeah. killed, you killed me, daddy. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and it does like this zoom, extreme zoom on it. Come on, guys. The biggest laugh of the movie. <laughs> I just about fell out of my chair. Laughing so hard. It's one of those things, Scott, where I, I think, you know, you know what you're getting into just from frame one because of the video stock alone. So stuff oh, yeah. like that doesn't bother me as much as it would. And if this was shot on film, that would be like, oh. What the fuck is that? <laughs> no, it has that kind of craziness and stuff like that. Whereas before we would see these movies go into phases like, okay, it's now it's like a dark psychological thing, but then it's going to go really crazy. And then it's going to go back to this. We'd see that happen from like mid scene and then go back again. And that I can see as being disorienting, but I think it did a really uh, interesting. I think it, it again, had some interesting characters in it and all the craziness and all the scantily clad women and the that that are getting knifed and some of the bad acting and some of the cheesiness and stuff like that i think there was something really interesting here i you know what something i want to actually point out is that the joe winecoop character of dr hess you're supposed to really feel bad for him and really be hoping actually i like that there's there are very until the end, there aren't really even the killers. There aren't really villain a real villain in the piece. Mm-hmm. They're tragic figures. Doctor Hess is a tragic figure. This uh, God, I gotta just look at his name so I keep on stop saying that guy. But uh, whoever I don't know was was, was this was it Johnny guy? You gotta help Johnny. me out, Johnny. Okay, Johnny. Johnny. Uh, Johnny was a tragic figure. You know, they were just tragic figures. They didn't. They never like quite lost it into full blown, you know, irredeemable mania like Mike did in the first film. Uh, I like that. I thought that was interesting. There's a really there's a there is a love scene that Joel Weinkoop has with his like girlfriend or wife or whatever. And I actually applaud this the scene for this is me talking for not being an exploitive scene. <laughs> I liked that. It was like, you know, the presence of a broad notwithstanding, this was a very realistic scene. Cause let's face it. Joel Weinkoop does not look like 
uh, Antonio Banderas, okay? He looks like an ordinary guy. But that's the charm of Joe Winecoop. Exactly. He looks like an ordinary guy. These look yeah. like ordinary people. It was it didn't seem like it was like this weird skinamax, you know, passionate thing. It was a very simple scene of these two people reaching out and having this very human intimate realistic moment i was really surprised by how that scene was shot i'm like that's not what you expect from a film called screaming for sanity truth or dare three but that can't but it did it and uh i liked how Ritter handled a lot of these characters in the film it kind of goes off the rails at the end a bit mm-hmm. for me and i think that at least one of the twists was telegraphed as soon as you had that this weird line of dialogue earlier in the film that sticks out like a sore thumb. But no, I, I still enjoyed this movie quite a bit. It was in danger of falling under its own weight, but I don't think it did. Yeah, I, I wouldn't it. say I wouldn't go so far to say that this isn't a movie worth watching by any means. I don't want to put that out there because I do like this movie, but I do feel that that final act. It, it it gets a little too Hollywoody for me. Well, there's a rescue. Well, you got to rescue the kidnapped girlfriend, and you know that's so that's and it's in an abandoned warehouse. Yeah, it's a big finale where everything's getting resolved. There's a big battle where people are getting thrown to car, through cardboard boxes and blah blah blah. blah. Ex, and the exposition is flying. Yeah, yeah. The Everyone's got to explain why they did everything. <laughs> Yeah, and there is at least one twist too many that that this character that just came in out of the blue, there's a character that comes in out of the blue at the end. I'm like, yeah, that that was a mistake. <laughs> but but yeah, so I can see that. But uh, there's still enough of an edge, though. I mean, this person isn't just kidnapped and tied up. She's fucking crucified, for God's sakes. Oh, my God. And then there's like this wonderful moment uh, between uh, Dr. Hess and Johnny where, you know, they're you know trying to like this a big like what now moment you know uh and i think that that was handled well so i think even that has enough going for it for that i could forgive it if it if if we did have the little chase scene rescue thing you know yeah um mark ultimately how'd you come out on this thing it well, I didn't enjoy it as much. And like I said, I watched uh, three of these four back to back. I watched the first one by itself, but then I watched two, three, and four back to back. This one, I would say out of the first three, I did I probably enjoyed the least. I still enjoyed it, but compared to the other two, I wasn't quite into it as the other two it, for me because I think it, it felt just a little bit by the numbers in a lot of spots. Um, I liked the message that I was going for again, you know, the, the whole, the whole worship of, you know, bad guys and of serial killers, how people were in love with them because we were getting other similar, more mainstream movies about that same thing. So, you know, I, I, I enjoyed all that, but out of the three, I think I didn't enjoy, I enjoyed this one, not quite as much as the first two. Although you do still get here once again, his statement about the ineptitude of uh, the medical profession, uh, because who in their right mind, what doctor would take a guy whose baby was killed by a serial killer and get him a job 
at Sunnydale Elementary School. <laughs> I'm like, do you want the man to flog himself every night because he's just torturing himself because he's got to stare at kids he will never have again i'm like who's you know so that was a little jab i think still uh but out of the three i i, I this one probably you know is is not as enjoyable for me as the first two yeah, that's where I would go with this one as well, is that I really like the places that it goes. I like the story. I like the themes. Um, it's, a, it's a good continuation of Wicked Games, but ultimately that final act just kind of bogs this thing down for me. Like, it just builds to this point where we just watch a couple guys run around a warehouse for like 15 minutes. And uh, some of the scenes at the end there are kind of cool, but I'm just not a big fan of, you know, I'm the bad guy and I'm going to sit and tell you why I did everything endings. Yeah. It just does nothing for me at all. Scott. It was, it wasn't so much that it was the, it was that, that then somebody else had to come in. Now uh, he had uh, explored the idea of, uh, spoiler alert territory, guys. Uh, spoiler alert in case you want to watch these movies, and I think you should. This is a warning. Thank you. He explored the idea of having multiple killers in the last movie, and um, he had to do it. I don't think he really needed to do that again in this movie to have not just the mastermind, but have also have the mastermind have a partner in crime that comes out of nowhere and adds nothing to the story. Double team murders were big around this time. I don't know if it was a reaction to the scream thing or if he was just continuing on the theme of the last movie, but yeah, I, w- I could have done without that. Other than that though, like I say, I, I liked the movie. I mean, I can see where, yeah, we're, we're into some problem areas. None of these movies are, are perfect. I don't believe in perfect movies anyway. I kind of like even some of the flaws in the movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I and, agree. uh, you know, one of the, issues we have to deal with in this movie is like yeah he mark is absolutely right pointing out the uh, that that it does touch upon uh bad medical people in the medical profession also terrible cops again i don't know if that was supposed to be the same uh, same character from the first movie that we saw it was a different actor i believe but there's this one cop character who interrogates the dr hess character and is just like the most inept, ridiculous, hot-headed cop you've ever seen, and I could have done without that entire sequence. But all the same, I still liked the movie. I liked the themes it was going with. I liked the unique twist it had on the killers in the movie. I think it was really clever how, and how you had this kind of duality playing between the Dr. Hess character and the Johnny character, each mm-hmm. of them uh, dealing with their own potential psychological breakdowns, uh, all thanks to this m- to Mike. I mean, I love the I love the fact that we have four these four movies, and you know, if they if they were just like going through the numbers, oh, it would be Mike escaped from the mental hospital and he's killing again. None of those yeah. these movies are like that. None of them nope. are like that. Mike is the killer from the first movie. That's it. Then after that, it's it's all these people whose lives have been touched by this, yep. who have who are now having to deal with the wreckage of it, and they are also dealing with their own issues. And I like that this film continued those themes. So I recommend this one. I think that 
I think that Wicked Games and Scream for Sanity make a great pair, actually. I think these are two really well-done shot-on-video films. Yeah, of shot-on-video fare, these movies take more chances than the vast majority of the stuff. Yeah. It's, it, it's dealing with far more serious issues. It's dealing with a lot more psychological issues. I think it, it the, the ideas and the themes break past what the budgetary restraints were for these films. And that's why I think these movies endure far longer than the vast majority of similar fare is that these movies are just far more intelligent than the others. Now, does that mean that they're perfect? As you had said, I'm also of the the thought of, I don't like perfect. I don't know perfect movies. Every movie has its own little quirks, but I, I love these movies. I really like all of these movies and this one. I will just say is just not my favorite of the three. And if anything, it's I, I do believe it's a good companion piece with Wicked Games. So let's go ahead and move on to the last film of the night made in. Well, not necessarily made in 2011, but released in 2011. Truth or Dare 4, Deadly Dares. You want to play Truth or Dare? All right, there. Now, Deadly Dares fast forwards to the present, the internet age, in which our lead character, Turner Downing, is a man who gets fired 
from his job as a cyber journalist, and I say journalist with air quotes, he works for a company that essentially takes associated press headlines and rewrites the stories. He gets fired from this $9 an hour job. On his way home, his girlfriend dumps him because he's a boring, good-for-nothing, no-ambition dude. And he gets a hold of his bud, who also works with him or worked with him, and proceeds to get drunk. And his bud introduces him to a website, Mikey's Deadly Dares, where people can go online, select somebody that they they want to um, talk to, and play games of truth or dare and by doing this he ends up meeting a mysterious woman who pushes him to murder so deadly dares fast forwards past all the mike strauber stuff for the most part and tries to completely rewrite the script on what truth or the truth or dare films are i have ever since i've seen this movie it's now we're talking almost six years now. I've always thought for a micro budget film that this was an extremely fresh, interesting way to reboot this series, which is essentially kind of what Deadly Dares is. It's taking from what came before it, uh, certain elements of the Mike Strauber and the infamy of these murders and all this stuff and set another story in that world without having to directly go off of the yarns we had just seen in the other movies. Uh, Mark, what did you think of this new direction with Deadly Dares? I think it was the proper way to go for it if you wanted to introduce this series to a new audience to kind of give it an update. Uh, I liked that we didn't go we're we're movie four here and we didn't go back to uh you know mike again on this though his influence does come up in it which which is fine i i like films like this who are trying to kind of reboot or take the series in another direction and they may make a, a casual reference or there's an influence from the original film but it's not you know it's not a direct sequel so to speak as far as that storyline from the first one so i dug it i thought it was a good good update uh you know you're right for when this came out especially it was you know kind of ahead of what you see now with with the internet and such uh because it it was dealing it, it had footage in here of you know, from a website of people doing dares in that and the way they shot it and stuff, you know, that's the type of thing. Now you see almost commonplace where people are looking for, Oh, you know, shoot this short and we'll include it in this video, you know, and here it's kind of a little bit ahead of that, <laughs> of doing that, you know, and, and yeah, overall, I, I liked it. I like, I liked the direction they took. I thought it was a natural direction and where you would want, to take a film if you wanted to modernize it for a new audience. Yeah, especially for the audience that this film catered to. Now, all of the different videos that you saw within this film, Tim Ritter actually reached out to fans and said, Mm -hmm. hey, would you like to make your own Copperface Killer video or Dare video? Send it in and it'll be part of this movie. So all of those scenes that you see on daretube.tv 
or DareTube.com in this movie are from our fan submissions. Oh, and that's cool. And, and it looked like it, you know, and I'm, I'm glad he, he did that because I like said now that's something that's almost commonplace. <laughs> Absolutely. The, again, Tim Ritter going well beyond the curve in the in the low budget micro budget direct to video fair scott how'd you come out on this one was this a, this was a first time watch for you wasn't it yeah yeah everything from two two through four were, were first time watches for me and uh i watched a three and four back to back and um i think that what he did with the tech technology he was i mean a lot of times even films that are these uh, shot on video things and everything like that they're they're a few years behind the times. This one was right on there because even though YouTube has been around for a very long time, I don't yeah. think he, some, sometimes I think we forget how long it's been around, but it's been around like a very long time. Um, but the whole notion of YouTube stardom is something that just became more and more prevalent in the 2010s, really, uh, you had a few before that, but I mean, it was kind of like seen as a fluke. Now, this is an actual career path that people go on. Yes. And uh, social media, of course, has exploded even more since then. Uh, and so I think that was a this was a really clever take on it. And I liked I knew that that's what he did for the uh, Dare Tubes submissions. And I think that was really clever because it starts out with the really mundane stuff starts at the starts out with somebody who's brushing her teeth with shampoo. Uh, and then, it you know, by the end of it, we're watching, you know, murders. And um, it was, uh, you know, I think that was very, very clever. And I think it was great to get the fans involved. He did touch upon this in, in the in the interview that I that you did before. And I was I was able to hear this part was that enabled him with I think did he say he also kickstarted this did he say that he he did crowdfund this slightly he crowd crowdfund this and he said I think he said it had like a budget of like five or six thousand or something like that mm-hmm. or something it's still, a low, it's still a low budget film yeah a low oh yeah very low budget and I think that getting the fans involved in doing that was a great idea having said that as clever as it was this one didn't quite work for me honestly mm. uh i liked because our focal point is this person again who's going through a psychological descent he uh his wife dumps him and he's got all this problems and then he sees this girl online and he starts having this you know long-term internet uh relationship with her that also a good touch but it's so one-sided, you know, where he's got to do all these crazy dares that go into murderous territory eventually. And she never, and she never has to do anything. She never has to do anything. At this one time, it's like it's like their quid pro quo is that you know he he had to murder a guy and uh, she has to she bop in front of him. You know, that's about it. And the problem is, is that unlike the other movies where those films first one a bit i mentioned the the first one drags a bit there's a little bit too much padding and stuff but the other film you know they, they don't they, they none of these films ever kind of got dull they never got boring this one i'm like okay you guys can speed this up a bit it seemed to take forever because it was such a slower descent and everything like that and while I like movies that take their time sometimes, it didn't need to take this much time. Mm. And 
especially when you could see, see where this was going. And uh, even the twist, you know, the twi- there's a big twist at the end. Uh, there's two twists. And the final twist is, you know, again, it, there's, a, there's a line of dialogue earlier where I'm like, I'm like, I made sure to like, I made a note of it. I'm like, why would that line be there? Uh-oh, I think I know it's, and, uh, you know, it's, you're not sure that that's where it's going, but, you know, it tries to tr- do the twisty turny thing towards the end and everything like that, but which is kind of nice. But by that point, it's a little bit too little too late for me. You know, there's just p- other parts of the movie that I had issues with. I had issues with the one big murder scene in the movie, uh, which is like him trying killing his former boss. It turns out that, you know, again, spoiler alert, guys, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. This is a warning. Thank you. I, I'm serious. I want people. I think people should watch the movies still, even if I didn't care for this one. I think people should watch it. Is that when it turns out that the boss is also who's a much more prolific serial killer and has gotten a right way with it. Now, if you go with the end, with the how it, what how it turns out at the end, you can kind of make an excuse for this. But it's still like it seems like way too out of left field, even for this movie, which is up to that point, taking a much, much more serious approach to than uh, the other movies. And that one, it, that one was a tonal shift that was just way too much. Hmm. So, I, I mean, I didn't, it's not like I thought that this movie was a total piece of garbage. Oh, I hate it. No, no I just, I feel like there's a lot of really clever ideas, especially about, he has a lot of clever ideas about the internet age and everything like that. And, uh, how people can, uh, uh, when they're unemployed and they're single, they can slip into isolation and kind of lose themselves in this online world and feel like they're in, and certain like social media things can make them feel like they're more powerful than they actually are. That's a totally legit thing to tackle. It absolutely Good is. For you, man. And I just don't think that it quite, I, I applaud him for tackling that theme. I just don't think it quite makes it. That's my only problem. It just didn't hmm. quite do it. It just didn't quite click for me. Interesting. Yeah. I I have to completely disagree with you. <laughs> I thought you might. I thought you might. I thought you might. I, I love this movie. I really think next to part one, this is my next favorite of this series. Wow. I really do because I think compared to the last two that we had watched, it's a far more linear film. I think uh, the production quality is quite high for the budget that it has. It's a far more cinematic film than any of the other ones other than part one. So it, it kind of makes that leap where you have to kind of get beyond the technical aspects of the film that much easier for you to just jump right into this thing. I think if any any of the movies I, I would recommend to just a normal horror audience Deadly Dares might be the one I might recommend to them right off the bat because it just there's a, a very easy bar of entry for this movie just from a technical aspect alone. I, I think for a micro budget film, the performances across the board are actually pretty damn good, especially and uh, we won't get too much into the drama that happened with this actress after this movie came out and her own truth or dare movie and all this nonsense. But uh, Jessica Cameron is actually pretty convincing in this movie. 
Yeah, I was surprised to see her in this movie since uh, she did another movie called that. <laughs> well, if you want to get into that, we can get into that. But for what we're doing right now, we'll just we'll move, maybe toward the end we'll sit and talk about that a little bit. But uh, she was playing the kind of the femme fatale, the the succubus of the film, if it were. Uh, she was really convincing. Uh, I I think Casey Miracle. Uh, the only part of this that kind of drags it down a little bit is that I think the VO was a little too monotone where it just kind of is felt the, lo- the, after the, a while. The noir, the noir voiceover. Yes. I, just thought there was, I just thought there was too much of it. I liked that there was, it was there and I think it really gave you a good glimpse into his head. I just thought there was too, way too much of it. That That could very well be, but just in general, I, I really enjoyed the story. I like where it went. I like the themes that it was touching on. I thought editorially it was doing a lot of very interesting things, jumping between different uh, footage stocks and then going back to the more cinematic look. And then as it built toward the end, I just personally, I really enjoy this m- movie from just a pretty basic, like, this is just a kind of a normal horror film. <laughs> this isn't some weird twisty-turny kind of uh, non-linear thing that we've been used to the last couple movies. So I I thought, you know, this one's a real breeze to sit through. Mark, what did you think of this thing? Yeah, it is the most linear out of the, the ones we've watched in the series up until this point. And uh, if yeah, I would say if you got your casual horror fan or your your fan, your quote unquote modern horror fan, they could watch this um, because the themes still apply today. And I I, I will say uh, as I've read online in, in some articles and such, you know it's not far from the truth that in those uh, cyber relationships that one side does a lot more for very little payment from the other side for lack of a better term um so so that i i don't think he they're actually off on that i think he was trying to make a point with that and and how dumb the guy was being in many ways He's following his dick he's following his dick yeah that you know that was his whole point was this this guy she she was so you know that it wasn't even dawning on him after a while that, oh, oh you know what, you know, <laughs> you know, she, but uh, so, yeah, so she was making a statement on that, but yeah, for me, I enjoyed it. And it was, I thought it was a decent modern update. I wasn't expecting it to be what it was. I thought almost, you know, oh, we're going to revisit, you know, the, the Mike character again in the story, but that barely came up. But he does address other themes in here, especially the internet popularity thing, which now, like you guys said, that that's very topical yet. <laughs> and this film was made, you know, a, a number of years ago, yet this film was, was very topical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that didn't necessarily 100% make the cut, there's multiple versions of this because I know Tim... I know this personally because Tim and I were in contact about me possibly coming on the team and helping him cut an HD version of this movie um, back in the day. And it just never happened due to scheduling and stuff like that. But I know he had a lot of troubles mm-hmm. with uh, editors <laughs> working oh. on this movie. And there are multiple cuts, but they actually reshot 
the short, the original short they had in uh, Twisted Illusions, the Truth or Dare short with Joel Weinkoop and another person. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask about that. Why, when they showed the flashback, why was it new footage with new actors? I mean, didn't he have the rights to it? That is a question I would like to ask him that I don't I don't believe I've ever gotten an answer to. I be, I bet you it is. It can't be licensing because I believe Ron Bonk right. releases that stuff. So I, I, I was confused. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. No, unless he couldn't. He was he he wanted to reshoot it because he shot the original on film and this one wasn't. And he maybe didn't have either the footage anymore or the transfer properly. And he wanted it to match as far as quality maybe yeah because that threw me off too that the original scenes we kind of got are reshot i'm like okay and i just figured it was a licensing or a rights issue or that he just couldn't get the permissions to use it but maybe it was the fact he didn't have an original or couldn't make the quality match so maybe he chose not to that'd be a great question to ask him because i was curious about that too right well it also could be that this is sort of a soft reboot right you know, just go ahead and just reshoot everything that maybe this was being pushed out there a little more towards people that weren't as familiar with the series. You know, so using old footage that necessarily hasn't been restored <laughs> at all at that time, maybe just didn't look right with mm -hmm. the rest of the stuff that he was shooting. So and that was one of the things that that jumped out at me right away was the quality of the photography in some of the submissions, I got to say some of the killing stuff and some of the masks were pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Like the dude that's running around with the gold tin mask with the ax. Yeah. The girl, I loved that sequence. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not so much the dude who had cut out a cardboard mask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they, there were some, the, oh, guy ahead, chasing, the guy chasing the girl with the axe was probably my favorite of those because I'm just like, oh, dude, that, that's cool. I want to see more of that, you know. Well, or that the, was kind uh, of guy. intense. It was it was actually like a pretty in your face kind of horror sequence. Yeah, it was it was a bit brutal too. I mean, you had gore effects in that whole sequence as well, you know. And and but then you get a little bit of a humor, like what, what we were talking about earlier, where you get the mundane ones in the beginning, where they pull out a can of dog food and they labeled it Dr. Ritter's, uh, was it uh, Dr. Ritter's organic dog food, um, which is I on the it's on the I label. I have to admit, Mark, uh, when that thing came on, I had to do a double take and squint to the screen because for like a split second, I thought that was you. <laughs> <laughs> in the picture, oh, I'm, my, I'm, like, I'm like, I know that the Astro Radio Z is in tight with Ritter. I didn't know it was like this type. <laughs> oh, wait, no, it's not him. That's an older guy. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're in Deadly Dare. Uh, Truth or Dare 4, I didn't realize this, Mark DeMuby. I, I am visually impaired, as I, I mentioned. Like, <laughs> I didn't realize this just, like, either. For a split second, I'm like, holy shit, Mark. Oh, no. <laughs> you got anything to say to that, Mark? I, I, you know what? Dog food tastes like pate. I'll just say that. <laughs> 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 i think anything that that's really missing in this movie compared to the previous three is gore yeah 
This yeah, is most... a fairly bloodless affair. Yeah, except most... for yeah, except for the submissions, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say that you get more gore in the submissions than you did. That's why at first I thought maybe the submissions were shot all by him as well, because um you had more gore in those shots than you did in the uh actual killing. <laughs> it's not a very bloody movie, you know, you know. I mean no. how how many you know, how many people does our main guy actually kill in the movie? Not nearly as no. much as our other, you know, uh, legacy of uh, truth or dare killers. Right. I, I, I don't think the story called for it. No, it didn't. It didn't. It I, Again, one of my complaints was that it took too long to get to this point, and it was uh, – a little under the film was underwhelming for me for a number of reasons, but no, it was a much more it was a much more focused story. Let's say that mm-hmm. you know it was more focused on this one guy, this one guy's problems, this one guy's issue, and uh, part of that was you know him just becoming this person. Whereas the becoming would be the first 20 minutes of an, of one of the other movies. <laughs> it, it was the, it was the full, you know, hundred minutes of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of, after three movies of just batshit crazy, who done it switcheroo stuff, it was kind of nice to just watch kind of a breezy horror flick. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, I can, no, I can totally see that. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually, I think the horror though that comes into this one, and uh, you know, I, Scotty, I know you you post a lot online, and and uh, Derek, you do of course as well. But for me, especially being uh, involved a lot on YouTube, the horror is I'm watching the parts where people are getting into it and and doing the submissions of the dare, and I'm like we're half a step away from seeing people do this. I could easily yeah. see this. And that for me was the scariest part. Cause I'm watching this going, you see a lot of trends that start up that are video trends, people setting themselves on fire, people, you know, putting balloons over their head. I mean, so I'm watching this going, you know, you're only, we're only half a step away from this actually being a trend where people just up their dares. I could, I could see that happening. And for me, that was the scary part as I'm watching this going, yeah, you know what? You're not far off. Well, yeah, you know, it's that whole idea of people trying to make a name for themselves, you know, and what's the easiest ways to just outdo the next person. And then obviously we're not going to see a bunch of people trying to kill off a bunch of people to get famous on, on YouTube or anything like that. But it's definitely a metaphor mm-hmm. for that whole pursuit of stardom. Um, so this, yeah, this movie isn't too far off of reality. So I would say, and I know I kind of already said it a little bit, this might be my second favorite of the entire series. There's just something about this movie that just, it gets me and I enjoy it just flies by. I absolutely love this one. Uh, Mark, what would you have to say? Final thoughts? Yeah, I, it's, uh, I would say I still like the first one the best, but this one and this one and two are almost tied as far as how much I enjoyed them. I enjoyed them for different reasons. Uh, they are still different films. And that's what I liked about this whole series is the fact that each one of these films, though they have similar elements, 
it's you see the filmmaker trying to do something new and, and at least a little different bring something different to the table and i always give props for filmmakers trying to do that rather than going a very easy route of just making the same stuff we've always seen <laughs> you know and even truth or dare four while it is a little bit more mate you know we talked about a little more linear a little more in line this film still is different than the other three so you still see the filmmaker here trying something new scotty d you kind of already said your piece on this you have anything else you want to add no just to reiterate that despite my uh misgivings about the film and that it just didn't make it for me as a whole uh it's an interesting film. It's an intriguing film. And I think he was right on point with how, you know, he was right on point handling the very thing most filmmakers can't do right, which is whenever they have to get topical regarding the internet, they either do something so hokey or so outside the realm of reality. And this one actually kind of seemed really plausible, uh, the themes he was tackling. And, uh, how he chose to do that. I thought that was really clever. Like I said, I liked how he brought the fans in and everything like that. Uh, I just didn't think that the uh, narrative narrative structure of the film, I just didn't feel like it really made it for me. That's kind of how I felt about the last one, but <laughs> yeah, there <laughs> that's, you go. That's, I mean, that's, that's cool. Um, so that's it for this. Um, I'm not really sure if I want to get into the controversy surrounding yeah, the main actress and, no, and that's okay. In her own version. Cause I just don't want to give pop to it. I really don't. I was because of my association with uh, truth or dare Four and the people that were involved in making that film in a very limited capacity. Um, I know a little more than, <laughs> than I should. <laughs> Well, there it is, folks. There's our talk on the Truth or Dare series. As I've said for many years, I'm a huge fan of these movies. And the, this was probably the episode I was most excited to get to of these shot on video ones. Even though I said my favorite shot on video film was the last one we did, Redneck Zombies, Truth or Dare, Critical Madness, Wicked Games, Screaming for Sanity, and now Deadly Dares are kind of the reason I'm into these movies. I grew up watching these movies. I grew up, I watched them many times. I watched Creep many times. <laughs> I've watched Killing Spree more times than I care to admit. And ultimately, it drove me to get in touch with Tim Ritter and finding out what an amazing guy that guy is. It's just... I love this series and I love these films. So I urge every one of you that haven't watched any of these movies, please go out, do yourself a favor. You're a fan of these shot on video movies. Go watch these movies. They're a hell of a lot of fun. Even the lesser ones are still interesting and head and shoulders above the vast majority of direct to video, direct to streaming dreck. So please go check these movies out. This is the portion of the show, of course, where my guests shamelessly shill the fuck out of you. So let's get to the shilling, goddammit. Mark the movie man shill. 
Specialmarkproductions.com uh, has links there to the Spoiler Room podcast, as well as the latest reviews I do on my YouTube channel. There's also a link to the work I do for uh, We Live Film uh, Horror Thursdays. I'm also going to have a couple of written reviews up there. I occasionally do those for We Live Film. Uh, you can also find me on the Twitters at SpecialMarkPro and also occasionally on a galactic netcasts when they do the galactic radio news show. So I'm a little all over the place. That is for sure. Mr. <laughs> Scotty D. Well, you can catch me here on Astro Radio Z. You can catch me on uh, Mark's show from time to time. And uh, you can also check me out on movieocrity.com and then check out my web series at vimeo.com slash movieocrity. Well, folks, we are going to be going back to the Divine Well next week with Paul Bartel's Lust in the Dust. Yes, I'm bringing in the John Waters crew back, and we're going to watch a weird Western. <laughs> and that's the only way I could really put it. So uh, until that episode, take care. All I wanted was somebody to believe in me. You can find Astro Radio Z on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, YouTube, and anywhere podcasts are found. Please, help us by subscribing, rating the show, and giving us a review. It helps us get the show out to more listeners. Also, if you would like to hear more of the show and be a more active participant, join the Astro Radio Z Facebook group and page, and join the Patreon. For only $1 a month, you get bonus episodes. Thank you for listening. See you next week, Astro Zombies. Questions that